0: been watching a lot of the bear of late season two. have you watched oh, season nice. two yet of the bear
1: i haven't watched any of season two no okay it's summertime man it's i'm really watching good. i'm watching love island that's that's all i got time for right now
0: oh is that all you're watching yep i gotta see when below deck starts back below decks my go-to like a uh, reality tv type thing i mean we're about to probably get a lot more below deck depending on how uh the strike strikes happen <laughs> uh, um No, but what I love when you watch it, and it's this is not like spoilers or anything, but what I I, just a little detail that I loved in season two because I'm I'm about halfway through, is the the show takes place in Chicago, and they are using I I applaud whoever picks these songs. They're using like Chicago movie songs Mm. in it. So like the big one is at a, a party scene. They're using Pretty in Pink. Um. On another one, they're using Holiday Road from Nash Lampoon's Vacation and the Griswolds are from Chicago. Um, on a different one, this is a very deep cut. They're using 25 Miles by Edwin Starr from Adventures in Babysitting. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm like, oh my, they're just like picking from all these like 80s or whatever Chicago movies and throwing them in there. So I was just like, wow, whoever is doing this like really knows their Chicago movies. Movie, so I'm just like waiting for like a Blues Brothers song to pop in somewhere. I don't know if I'm gonna get it, but I'm I'm holding out hope, <laughs> is the thing. Um, so you've been watching Love Island. Have you been watching anything else besides that? Or just uh, rolling? Righteous Gemstones Love
1: and Love Island. That's about it.
0: I need to I need to catch up on Righteous Gemstones. My parents are watching it right You're now. You're not watching this
1: season. You know who who the villain is in this season, right?
0: um who, steve zahn That's yeah that, that, yeah so my mom called me up and she was like hey i just want you to know we've been watching righteous gemstones and steve zahn's in it this season
1: steve zahn's in it and lucas haas plays his son and he's he's really <laughs> like funny i i you know i I've, I've always been i've always gone to bat for lucas haas but like did not expect him to be funny or like hold his own with the rest of this crew
0: <laughs> but there you go one of my many shows to watch i still <laughs> need to watch season three of ted lasso i've heard a lot of things some good some bad um and so i need to do that but i'm brand sparks
1: and i'm thomas horton
0: the nation podcast first off before we dive into this month's topic or this episode's topic big announcement thomas i mean you know this i haven't told i mean we haven't told this publicly oh yeah we're host we're 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 co-hosting a late night screening at the New Art Theater on Friday, August 11th. Yep. We're going to be showing Brian De Palma's Fan of the Paradise. The show starts at 10.30pm. Tickets are already on sale, so get them now. I will post links on our social and everything. But yeah, it's our first time doing a screening of some kind. Um, I'll do a little speech beforehand because I'll be there. Thomas is in Atlanta. Unless he just randomly shows up. I don't <laughs> know about um, but We'll be talking about fan of paradise and brian de palma and it's funny i didn't realize till recently that brian de palma is one of our most covered directors on the show which is somewhat shot we've done three movies by him we've done blowout Ooh. fan of paradise and body double so
1: most covered director that we we haven't done a, a full month devoted Full to. month
0: of yeah well it's like him and billy wilder and i think there might and him billy wilder maybe one more but with billy Wilder, we've done the apartment sunset boulevard and witness for the prosecution So Billy Wilder and Brian De Palma, they're up there. Um, But yeah, it's going to be kind of a night of Fan of Paradise and Swan and the works or the songs of Paul Williams. It's going to be a wild, chaotic night. Um, We hope you all can be there. If you can show up and support the Sin Nation podcast, that will kind of help us hopefully do more events like this in the future through New Art or elsewhere. But New Art's a really great theater, historic theater in Los Angeles. Been around for almost 100 years. Just recently, a new remodel so come out if you can again august 11th friday august 11th at 10, th- 10 30 p.m if it's late i know it's late night for you for some people it's a 90 minute movie you're going to be out like around 12 15 if i had to guess i um, guarantee
1: you're you're not falling asleep during you're not falling asleep in that movie. Of the paradise no
0: so if you haven't seen it come out and see it. it's a new 4k dcp of it so it's a great kind of restoration of it um it's gonna be a great night so come if you can bring a friend bring a foe i don't know um, but I, we hope to see you there, but that's coming up in about a month, so tickets are on sales at, sales at New Art's website, Landmark Theater's uh, website, so get them, get them while they're hot, get them while they're now open, um, but yeah, so this month, speaking of a musical, we're doing something, I feel like a little different mm-hmm. this month, last we talked about con artist movies, and that was a very unique genre in itself, but this month, you or I asked you what you want to do this month, and you kind of suggested because we had a a pretty decent TikTok on a little shop of horrors that we should possibly do an Alan Minken series, and what's I think fascinating about this and kind of the movies we picked, it's a mixture of Alan Minken, but also ties into the Disney Renaissance of animation, basically. Yeah. So it's like they're they're really tied together. So like with the stories I'm going to be talking about this month it's going to be both Minken, but also just very much disney animation as a whole
1: yeah i i think something that got me thinking about it and i, I brought it up a little bit on our little shop of horrors episode which is on uh patreon mm-hmm. but you know when you when you look at kind of the my wife is is very into musical theater and and you look at little shop of horror and you look at howard ashman and and alan Minken and they're these like really hot shot rising uh, yeah. composers in an era that like we didn't like sondheim was already established i'd say sondheim probably along with andrew lloyd weber probably dominated the like late 80s and the 90s on broadway and you're mm-hmm. like who are the only other challengers to them and that's alan Minken who's coming up in, in in like the 80s but then he goes and does this like disney renaissance and so yeah on the one hand, I asked my wife, I was like, is there any kind of animosity on Broadway towards the fact that like these two great minds are kind of stolen away from Broadway? Mm. And, and she was like, no, I don't think so. Because, I, you know, most people these days, if even if you are going to be asking them like what they think about musical theater in the 90s, if they're, you know, any sort of, of age range from 20 to 50, then they probably were impacted at some point by this disney renaissance so it's kind of hard to be like no i I would rather have like a couple of great broadway musicals than aladdin and uh beauty and the beast and little mermaid and yeah so so it's an interesting you know it's it's taking these these the uh, alan minkin a very great mind and kind of putting him to uh i don't know kind of utilitarian use you know yeah making him for everybody whereas broadway is is something that that's thought of as a little bit more uh yeah elite and exclusive so that's that's why i kind of wanted to to give him the treatment that we would give auteurs or that sort of Mm -hmm. thing because he's i think he's someone who's been very influential on people around our age uh yes and a pretty wide age range so i I thought it would be interesting and that you know, you can look at, at screenwriters throughout their work and kind of pick up themes. We've talked mm-hmm. about composers like John Williams, uh, and, and obviously we've talked about directors a lot. But I, I, I was mm-hmm. just kind of wondering what what you and I could pick up from approaching someone's career in this way.
0: Yeah, I mean, already with kind of the stuff I've been researching and talking and think, looking looking at with Alan Minken is that I think the big thing I'm coming into this already and we'll probably learn even more as we go is he's kind of a chameleon Mm -hmm. in a way with how he does his music and we'll discuss more and more. And he also the way, and by that, it's like specifically his different collaborations. Like I think all four movies we're talking about this month on the main show, I think even on the, on the Patreon stuff, uh, at least with one of them, it's all different like songwriters.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like it's it's with different people, but yet all of the, the songs can tie back to him in some way. If it's the melody or just the kind of tone, something about it is it's, that's why when looking at the Disney Renaissance kind of period, he seems like one of the like constants throughout. Like there's several directors or several producers or several executives and everything like that but he seems like this big one that's really there throughout the entire thing is there for several of the big hits and also several of the misfires. Um, mm-hmm. and then back when it kind of returns and like you said, it's, it's almost like with Minkin and Ashman specifically with Howard Ashman, it would be like when we when asked that question, it'd be like Lemuel Miranda doing in the Heights, winning a Tony and then just going off and doing animated films Mm -hmm. like that's what kind of is like but just basically say doesn't do Hamilton he goes straight to Moana which is almost what happened Mm -hmm. because he was working on Moana at the same time as doing Hamilton so there's a possibility that it just does and that's all he does from there on out um and then Ashman is going to be a very interesting discussion in this episode too just because he was such an integral part in Alan Menken's early kind of upbringing as a composer in a way once they started kind of working professionally and so and we'll talk about kind of the thing of of, with with ashman's early death that ends up being kind of a springboard for minkin where he has to kind of take the reins um and like the partnerships he would have, mm-hmm. based off of of what he learned from Matt Howard Ashman, is the thing. And I have some quotes about that later on that we'll discuss. But yeah, it's just interesting to see already just what we'll talk about as this episode and the month goes on, of how this person's work and this rise are so tied together. And and that's something that Ashman said when they did Little Mermaid was that in comparing Disney animation, and musical theater, how they're very cl- they're close to what people think. And if you can find a way to put them together, it could be one beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we'll get into this month. So their first collaboration at Disney was The Little Mermaid. But we're not starting with The Little Mermaid, Thomas. We're, we're doing Beauty and the Beast, which I think is where they, the duo of, of Minkin and Ashman really kind of master what they want to do for the Disney Renaissance. Yes. And that becomes almost like the thesis of the rest of the... The kind of period, essentially. Mm-hmm. So Beauty and the Beast, for those who do not know, is directed by Kirk Wise and Gary Trosdale and their directorial debut, feature directorial debut. Uh, screenplay was written by Linda Wolverton um, with a story by with a lot of different people. It's produced by Don Hahn, uh, music by Alan Menken, score and the songs by Alan Menken, and then lyrics by uh, Howard Ashman, who's also, I believe, an executive producer on this as well. Uh, It stars Paige O'Hara, Paige O'Hara as Belle, Robbie Benson as The Beast, Richard White as Gaston, um, Jerry Orbach as Lumiere, Angela Lansbury as uh, Mrs. Potts, David ogden Styres as Cogsworth, and so on and so forth. So, Thomas, what is your history with Beauty and the Beast?
1: uh we watched we watched this one a lot as kids this was like one we always we always like within my family we always said that it was my dad's favorite movie um but the joke (laughs) of that was that it was just like the only kids movie that my dad really tolerated um so like we were allowed to put this one on a lot uh but we had it you know in the classic uh disney vhs the little white uh Mm -hmm. plastic cases and big fans yeah big fans of this yep. one big fans of bell's enchanted christmas with tim curry the,
0: the mid the the mid curl the midquel. i believe it's what it mid quill like the the middle sequel yes like yeah like it takes
1: place within this movie yes they're yes. like oh yeah no it would be much more fun if they were still household objects <laughs>
0: <laughs> and he's still a beast
1: yeah 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 for thing. sure but but yeah this is one I, I i've continued to come back to as as i've gotten older and it's just the kind of the songwriting is so interesting i think the composing is really interesting i think it's yeah. a huge step forward part part of the reason we kind of i i think we kind of lean towards this over little mermaid is as a composer i think those the, the mm-hmm. score for this is so much more uh advanced than little mermaid as far as like a like a film yeah. score goes yeah um and I, I truly think it is the the best visual... I mean, there's some... I think there's some more interesting mm-hmm. visually Disney movies. I personally love the, like... I love Oliver and & Company and, like, the pencil sketchings that they do. Like, the pencil yeah. sketch backgrounds for Oliver & Company. But as far as, like, the Disney look, I think this is the best-looking movie of the Disney re- renaissance.
0: I agree. I think... Because this is when you're seeing... It's again, and we'll discuss more. It's like you're seeing the kind of combination of past, present, and future, kind of all together. Mm. Is it's it's kind of all. It's the first time the big, the big kind of show. I think the the, the I think the breathtaking shot, as we talk about shots in an anime film, is the ballroom thing, and we'll talk about yeah. that in favorite scenes. But like the way it combines traditional animation with computer generated imagery. CGI, or at least like kind of the 3D animation, like mm-hmm. the Pixar would later use, because um, because basically Pixar's Caps, which is their kind of software program they they created, is a big part of that sequence. And it, it re- again talking about the thesis of the Disney Renaissance with Minkin and Ashman kind of leading the way as an animated on the animated front. This is also kind of the thesis with mm-hmm. how it creates depth within shots and. The kind of vibrant, colorful world that I think, while it's there in Little Mermaid, there's just something where it feels a little bit stronger here and forward if that makes sense
1: yeah i think there's a stronger i i I think it's funny sometimes when you see a a, and i'm and i'm not pretending to be an expert in animation in any way but i do think it's funny when you see an animated film with people sometimes and like the credits will show up and it'll they'll have like a credited director of photography people be like well, why do you need a dp there's like no camera and it's like yeah but you gotta you gotta think like there's a camera and and i think uh and and i'm sure this is partially the directors and partially the animators but like the camera in this movie is so dynamic i I just just today pulled up like you know this is one i could have done this episode without revisiting at all but i i I pulled up some scenes today and just the the opening little town sequence the way the camera Mm -hmm. moves is incredible
0: yeah and that's like so with that one too there's a, a movie called and I wonder if they pulled this from this. I think it's a movie called "Love Me Tonight," it's a 1930s musical film, and it starts with the morning in a town and people opening the windows and singing this big song. And I was like, "Oh, that's Beauty and the Beast." <laughs> so, like, it's like it's already like inherently cinematic in your first scene. And I think that's where we'll talk about more with Ashman and Minkin. They bring into it is that musical theater quality where, like, we talk about "Little Shop." How, how you have the "Little Shop Horse prologue mm-hmm. but then you have the skid row yes and essentially what's so unique about this is that this is kind of the skid row
1: absolutely yeah this it's, is the skid row song here's our setting and here's our main character and here's, here's what our main character, character wants like boom yes. that is yeah it's 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 skid row 100
0: and then that that reprise of it becomes an i want song in the process mm-hmm. it's like not as strong as say, part of your world with little mermaid but it becomes this kind of small "I want" song of like "I want adventure in the great white somewhere," whatever it is, great wide somewhere. Um, there's got to be something more here, essentially. Like that's all there. Um, but we'll dive into that favorite scenes. We could keep going. I just I lost myself there. But yeah, so my history <laughs> too, similar thing. Watched it a lot growing up. Uh, it was a big favorite. It's people are always surprised when I because I, I always loved Peter Pan growing up. Yeah, Peter Pan was always like a childhood favorite. Same. It was a it was a redheaded kid. It was I I I related, <laughs> um, and but Being the Beast is always like my second favorite, if not my number one. And people are always kind of shocked by that because I feel like I don't, There's something about, and this is not a diss towards millennials sometimes, but it's always like some people like put in like Brother Bear or like Emperor's <laughs> New Groove or Tarzan in there, and that's totally fine. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm not. But it's just something about, and, and not everyone says "Being the Beast." And I'm somewhat surprised by it. Like I don't know why. Phil Collins is great. I'm not dissing on Phil Collins, but like that <laughs> was when, and we'll talk about it as, the, as the the month goes on. That's when they kind of lost sight of that musical, musicality, that musical aspect that Ashman and Minkin bring to it, mm-hmm. and went more like pop vocals, right? Yeah, is the thing. And this is the kind of perfect mix of it, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, but yeah, watched a lot growing up. Uh, big fan. Um, I think I had like, I think it was Burger King. Burger King or someone had like these like, collectible cups for Disney animated films. And it's they had different movies. And I think I had a Beauty and the Beast one is what it was. Um, but also just like, and Disney too, growing up in the 90s, it's like, in that renaissance period it was kind of everywhere yeah. like as a company the disney store like all these different things um the disney channel popping up in the late 90s and early 2000s now being the beast it's like when you look at disney as a whole if you can go look at like the disney 100 uh like thing the shot of being the beast of bell and beast on the ballroom is like the image that i think Maybe one of the biggest, if not the most popular image of, like, the Disney as a whole type Mm -hmm. thing, in, like, my opinion. Um, Anyway, I guess you guys will know how we think about this movie already. Like, we've tipped our hand very early. But (laughs) before we dive into the and the Beast, again, the month is about Alan Menken. So, I have to establish some backstory on Alan Menken. Um, And in this kind of history, it's like, essentially, this is a history of how it got into production by way of going through Alan Minken's life story <laughs> um, into the Disney Renaissance life story. So this is kind of a longer section here. So anyway, Alan Irwin Minken was born to Judy and Norman Minken on July 22nd, 1949. So he's about to celebrate a birthday soon um, at the French Hospital in New York City. He was born into a fairly creative family. His mom, Judy, was an actress, dancer, and playwright. And Norman, according to Alan Minken on his website, was a boogie-woogie piano playing dentist
1: I, I i actually i knew that uh you knew this okay i knew that yeah from the little shop uh the little shop
0: You're talking tiny about, yeah. desk yeah yes and so not only was his father a dentist i believe his grandfather and great-grandfather it was like three generations of dentists wow basically. maybe that's why i i you relate to him so much <laughs> yeah. Um, He grew up in New Rochelle, New York, and you might recognize that name because it's where Frank Abagnale Jr. Mm -hmm. is from, and Catch If You Can, we talked about recently. Uh, Mankin said he grew up in a music and theater household, along with his two sisters, Faye and Leah. It's no surprise, because of all that, he developed an interest in music, taking both piano and violin lessons. At age nine, he won his first award for composing. At age nine, he won his first award for composing music. Wow. All right. After graduating high school, Minken would attend New York University, NYU. Uh, he originally studied pre-med with plans to join the family business of becoming <laughs> a dentist. He would soon change majors to anthropology and then philosophy before finally graduate, graduating with a degree in musicology. While Minken was interested in becoming more of a rock star and doing pop songs, he would still write musicals on the side. During his time at NYU, he wrote his first musical called Separate Ways, a rock musical about hippies living in an apartment building with conservative neighbors. Soon, Minken would audition for the BMI musical theater workshop that was being taught by Lehman Engel, who was this kind of famed uh, composer at the time. Uh, Minkin said he did the workshop to appease his parents, but once he got there and saw all these other composers working, he realized this is what he wanted to do for a career. Minkin would showcase several of his works through the BMI workshop. And during this time, Minkin would work a variety of musical jobs. He played piano for ballet and modern dance recitals. <laughs> uh, he was a musical director for Club Axe, a jingle writer, a songwriter for Sesame Street for a brief time. Oh, wow. uh, him and Ashman also did that at one point in the late 80s, I guess around the Time of Little Mermaid um, as well. And he was also a vocal coach. It was around this time he wrote a rock ballet for the downtown ballet company called children of the world. The most important part of this experience was that Minkin met his future wife, Janice, and they have now been married, I think for 50 years, uh, uh, last year's what it was. Minkin was mainly a composer and lyricist for all of his musicals at this point, but that all changed when he met Howard Ashman and Ashman, like Minkin, was from a Jewish family. Um, he was the, I think he moved to New York at a certain point as well. Uh, he was the son of an ice cream cone manufacturer, is what it was, <laughs> Howard Ashman. Ashman and Minkin would meet at the BMI workshop, and in 1979, the two would create their first musical together, a musical based on Kurt Vonnegut's God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. When looking back on this time, Minkin said he found a natural collaborator with the driven and dramatically astute Ashman. Makin told the Hollywood Reporter that Howard had his finger on the pulse of that sweet spot between musical theater and pop music, and using songs in a really smart context. That would become true with the duo's next collaboration, director uh, together, which would be the 1982 off-Broadway musical *Little Shop of Horrors*, an adaptation of the B movie from Roger Corman, which we talked about on our Patreon episode when covering the film's or the, the musical's film adaptation. So. Minkins, if you want to learn more about that, go to our Patreon. Uh, Minkins said that after the tremendous success of Little Shop on Off Broadway, Hollywood began calling. It would get a, a film adaptation, but also because the the musical and the producer or the musical and the movie's producer, David Geffen, was a major player in the entertainment industry, he kind of helped them get a leg up in the industry. Reportedly Geffen, who would later become partners with this man, uh put the put the duo on the radar of jeffrey katzenberg at walt disney pictures Mm. um howard ashman had recently written the opening song for disney's recent anime feature oliver and company uh the song called once upon a time in new york city um but he did the lyrics for it geffen told katzenberg that he should meet ashman and minkin together because uh he said they were super talented and loved disney movies ashman and minkin would soon meet with katzenberg and they would pitch him on an adaptation of Aladdin in a similar vein of Bob Hope and, Bing Cros- uh, and a Bing Crosby musical. Oh. But Disney and Katzenberg were like, no, nah, let's not do that. <laughs> Here's some projects we have that are do- that are going. Are there any you're interested in? And one of those would be The Little Mermaid, which was an adaptation of a Hans Christian Andersen story. What what
1: What year was this? This would have been... This would have been, let's see, Little Mermaid 80, was 88.
0: 80, it was eighty-nine for Little Mermaid, so it's probably like 87 86. I was about to
1: say that's like that's like right at Ishtar, right? <laughs> so like yes. you don't want to be pitching a, you know, uh, a yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Bob
0: Hope, Bing Crosby. That's a good. That's a good reference. Yeah, Ishtar is eighty-seven, so it's probably right before. It's right before, and Katzenberg's probably like, man, we we were we were lucky on that one, so. They take Little Mermaid. And so Little Mermaid was something that Walt Disney had tried to make earlier on in his career in the 1940s, I believe. Uh, At one point, they were trying to do, I believe, a, like, biopic or something of Hans Christian Andersen, but they were going to do, like, kind of an anthology series where it was a lot of different different stories that he did but also used the way, like, showcase his life is what it was. It was kind of an odd thing. But basically, they could never quite crack it. Um once they got on, Minken was excited about working on the project, not because it was working for Disney, it was because he was getting to work with Howard Ashman again. They had separated briefly uh, for Ashman to go work on his Broadway musical Smile, which Ashman directed and wrote the book and lyrics for, with the music being done by Marvin Hamlish. But Smile would be underwhelming and kind of be kind of a failure quickly and box office wise, I believe. Hmm. And so, as the duo took on the music for The Little Mermaid, which was met with pushback from several people at Disney, Ashman and Minkin, specifically Ashman, wanted to blend animation with a traditional musical. And it was Disney's first fairy tale in 30 years, so it was already deemed a risk. And at this point, for those who don't know, uh, Walt Disney Studios, specifically Walt Disney Feature Animation, was very much kind of on a downward trend in terms of public perception. It was at, seen as the kitty kind of movies essentially auburn company kind of lifted them up but after walt's death the company kind of was living in a shadow the entire entire time always asking what would walt do which prevented them from being innovative which was something that walt always kind of stood for Mm -hmm. Um, after a hostile takeover in the mid-1980s putting michael eisner and frank wells in charge of the company ousting walt's son-in-law ron miller from from the company uh, Eisner would bring in his right-hand man from Paramount Pictures, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who would run the feature film division. Uh, Katzenberg, being very focused on stars, always focused more on live action at first, but was soon became much more involved in the animation division, as you'll see as we keep going. Uh, the animators of Disney felt like they were the ugly stepchildren of the company after Eisner moved them out of the original Disney Animation Building in Burbank, to a warehouse in Glendale. They had several box office failures with Box with Black Cauldron and several others. Uh, so Disney animation was needing to be rejuvenated in some way. And in their eyes, they felt reber- reverting back to fairy tales or back to musicals uh, would be kind of a retread. Mm-hmm. But Ashman and Minkin were not looking to do that. They were looking to expand the form. Essentially, uh, when they came on to the songs, Minkin would eventually score The Little Mermaid, something he had never done before for a movie, and Andy Hill, Disney's manager of music production at the time, said the studio did not trust Minken to score the film. They thought he was great at writing songs, but probably couldn't do a score. So Disney had him audition for them, allowing him to hold an orchestra or orchestral session for three hours. And they I had him write a piece of music for action or romance type scenes. And they're wanting to try him, get him to match the tone of what they thought The Little Mermaid should be and after he recorded a successful take of the big storm scene in the movie mm-hmm. when, when Ariel rescues Eric, um, he looked to Andy Hill and asked him, what do you think? And Andy Hill said, I think you're going to win an Oscar. <laughs> and he did. Um, he would win an Oscar for Best Original Score for The Little Mermaid, and he and Ashman would win an Oscar for... Can you guess what song they won an Oscar for? Is it Under the Sea? It's Under the Sea. Yeah. Part of Your World, not even nominated. <laughs> It was Kiss the Girl and under the Sea with the nomination well, for that That's
1: that's a tough one cuz there's there's such a long uh gap between like the part of your world and like the reprise I guess but like the reprise is yeah. really like the climax of the song you know it's like Yeah. that it's a that's a tough one to nominate.
0: Yeah. Still good though. But yeah, mm-hmm. so The Little Mermaid proved to be a big hit uh bringing Disney animation back to the mainstream and making Ashman and Minkin a sought after duo within the company at Disney. So, as The Little Mermaid was released, Disney was working on their next project. And it was also a project that Walt, had attempt, Walt Disney had attempted previously, both in the 1930s and the 1950s. In 1987, after the success of Who Framed Roger Rabbit?, Disney resurrected the project in hopes of making it at their satellite studio in London, England. Uh, Richard Williams, who directed the animated sequences of Roger Rabbit?, was offered the role of director for this movie, but he declined it in order to work on his passion project of The Thief and the Cobbler. He recommended another London animator, Richard Purdom, to direct the project. Disney would hire Richard Purdom, and there's also reports that his wife, Jill, joined as co-director as well for this movie. It's com- Some books say it, some just kind of list him, but I-, I read that it was referred to as the Purdom version as you'll see as we keep going. Um, Animation for the film started in London on a non-musical adaptation of Beauty and the Beast set in 19th century France. While working on the movie, Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg pushed the production to hire a screenwriter, something that had not yet been done in animation really before because they mostly used storyboards. Similar to the musical stuff from the previous film, there was a lot of pushback from animators about bringing in a screenwriter to kind of shepherd their work in some way and they brought in linda wolverton and wolverton had been working for disney for several years but in their animated tv series department and she was growing tired of it she asked her agent to put her up for animated feature jobs and her agent said she wasn't ready for it yet so wolverton went to disney's main offices and dropped off a spec script to a secretary and said give this to somebody who can who, who can read it basically someone someone important i guess mm-hmm. is the thing Two days later, Jeffrey Katzenberg calls her to schedule her for an interview, which essentially, I believe, leads to her being hired for Beauty and the Beast. Uh, Wolverton was apparently not the first person to have a crack at this script, um, but she'd be the one that stuck on for the entire run. Roger Allers, one of the lead animators in the film, butted heads with Wolverton, he said. Uh, She was upset that the animators kept changing her script. He said that it was kind of a birth by fire because they soon began working together every day learning what the other was doing, and began to actually have a true collaboration. Finally, after a year or more working on this movie in London, the film's producer, Don Hahn, took the initial reels from London to Burbank to show Jeffrey Katzenberg. Hahn would then return to London and tell the crew, I have some good news and I have some bad news. The bad news is we're throwing everything out and starting over from scratch. The good news is we get to go to France and look at architecture and all the scenery there. (laughs) Katzenberg was apparently very dissatisfied with what was happening on Beauty and the Beast. And that would kind of become a spiral downward, I guess you could say, because as soon as they started over, Richard Purdom would step down from directing and they would now have to go find a new director or directing team to helm beauty and the beast they would offer the directing position to john musker and ron clements who had just made little mermaid but they turned it down because they were tired from making little mermaid after it just wrapped after i guess a four-year process they would then they were then offered to young animators kirk wise and gary Trosdale, who had directed sections of cranium command a short film for epcot ride
1: classic classic big cranium command guy
0: I never did that. I never did that. Oh, yeah.
1: I loved Cranium Command. Well... It was basically Inside Out. Like... Oh. I don't know what... I guess Disney doesn't owe themselves copyright claims, but (laughs) uh, if any studio other than Disney had made Inside Out, I feel like someone could have sued. They
0: would sue. Yeah. So, they directed a short film. They directed that part at Epcot, and they're like, we want you to direct it, and they're like, okay. Kind of like shocked. They're like, (laughs) us... I always say, like, yeah, it was almost like you're in the kitchen getting a snack, and someone turns the light on. You're like, oh god, and like trying to hide. <laughs> it's like, that's kind of what it was for us when we were offered to direct it. Um, Katzenberg would then ask would then ask Howard Ashman, and Alan Menken to come on board and turn this non musical into a musical in hopes of capturing the same magic of The Little Mermaid. Ashman was currently working on his passion project. Aladdin, the movie they had brought originally to Disney, um, but he was also kind of greatly sick with AIDS at the time. Um, He had had it while making Little Mermaid, but kept it kind of secret, and he only told a few close people after Little Mermaid happened. Um, But he reluctantly agreed to join the struggling production of Beauty and the Beast, and Alan Menken would do the same. So Ashman and Minken would then write most of the music at a residence inn in Fishkill, New York, close to Ashman's New York City home. Here, Ashman and Minken were joined by Kirk Wise and Gary Trosdale, Don Hahn, and Linda Wolverton to retool the entire script of Beauty and the Beast. And now they're having to craft this large-scale anime and musical in just two years instead of the original four that they initially had. <laughs> and because of this... Um, because of the rest of the happens of this movie, I'm gonna save that for onset life. But that's basically where we're at. They have to create this big musical in half the time they usually would have. So that makes that that leads us to favorite scenes. So Thomas, what's some of your favorite scenes in this movie?
1: I mean, we already, you know, we already hit upon it, but but I think we we talked in our little shop of horrors episode about how good uh the skid row scene is it dropping you into the movie it gives you absolutely everything you need to know and the little town is the exact same way it's it's a great song it's visually stunning to kind of watch this town come alive and watch Mm -hmm. it you know it's 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 not choreographed uh you know it's not some big choreographed song and dance number but it is choreographed in a way it, it moves like like a choreographed scene, you know, you've got this, the way that bell kind of weaves in and out of, of the, the morning bustle. Um, I I love the, the shot when she kind of walks across the, the wagon and it Mm -hmm. pops up on the other side and like knocks that guy's teeth out. Um, (laughs) You know, it's, it's all kind of a play. Like you, like you said, I, I didn't know that there was a specific movie, but it does feel like kind of a cartoonish play. On the yeah. way that a, a real movie musical would go in that scene, um, and then you know it gives you Belle. It gives you a great intro to her. You know, but you've read it six times, or, yeah. or you know, I'll take this book. Um, and you know, the the song is about how how weird she is, but then obvi- very obviously the bookseller like loves her. She's obviously someone who's very kind and and ple- yes. pleasant to be around then you get that great kind of foreshadowing of the later song and of basically the plot of the movie with mm-hmm. with her going through the book then you get Gaston introduced it's like everything boom 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 it's yeah. it is you know it is entirely uh yes it is it is all this it it is an information dump but in a in a song and so we forgive it
0: <laughs> yeah it's funny can you bring that up cuz cuz Ashman said that you can get away with putting exposition in a song yeah, versus putting it in dialogue.
1: Here's Belle. Here's the town. Here's Gaston. Here's what people think about Gaston. Here's what people think about Belle. Here's what Gaston wants. Here's what Belle wants. Here's what's going to happen yeah. in this whole movie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we get the prologue with the Beast, and we get his whole want and needs, essentially. And then you get this whole song with her of her kind of whole wants and needs essentially yeah Yeah. and like you said you've
1: you've already got with little shop you've got the kind of little shop prologue about the aliens and and whatnot so it's like he's you got a song that's like here's what happened here's here's catching you up to this point and then this song that's like here here's where we are now here's the players you need to know yeah here's what everybody wants
0: that's yeah that's a good point i mean i I mean that's what a prologue is but it's like hey here's what you missed and here's where (laughs) we're at yeah, um, and they do they do, do it in Little Shop, and I guess they do it. Little Mermaid, does it start with Under the Sea? Is that the
1: no? It's the song that like the sisters are doing. Yes, um, yes,
0: the sister song. Yeah. Sorry, I'm, but yeah, that. But I I just think this is where they ha- they kind of really have it mastered mm-hmm. for this format basically, um, with everything, um. So yeah, I love that sequence. Also, too, I watched it on Disney Plus. And I think it's available in 4k. Oh my God. It is gorgeous. (laughs) Right? Like it's, it's literally gorgeous. Like I always thought it was a beautiful film when you see it in 4k, just the colors, the depth of the, of the movie. Like it's at a point where like the 4k is so good. You can notice when the animation is lacking in certain parts. Mm -hmm. Like, like sometimes when you're in wide shots, you can tell that the drawings aren't as detailed but when you get into close-ups, it's it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. Um But yeah, I, I love the whole again, we we have the like the Bell sequence, and I like the whole sequence after when like when Gaston tries to propose to her, he just has the audacity to create a whole wedding before actually asking if she wants to get married. Um and finally you get that kind of I want song. I want mm-hmm. I want so much more than this. Mm-hmm. Um and and one thing i wrote down too as you kind of start seeing early on especially when you get to the, the the castle minkins minkins score is really great in this movie yes like we talk it's it's really great
1: so do you know do you know do you know what song this is based on his score is based on
0: no which song
1: okay so it's based on a classical composition but it's that that composition is used as score in another movie um so it is the score in this is based on uh the it's a composer named Camille Saint Sands, and he has a piece called The Aquarium, and that mm. is used as the score for uh Days of Heaven.
0: Oh wow. Yeah. It's the kind of like
1: the the kind of tinkling, I, I, like it's funny, I
0: wrote down you're right. Yeah. I wrote down magical score because I was like the way it kind of like, yes, when she's in, when she's in the castle, like
1: I've seen interviews where he's like, I 100% rip the score (laughs) off
0: of days of heaven
1: (laughs) or just, just from aquarium. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The way the, the piano kind of like drifts down. It's in these like arpeggios and even the melody underneath that Uh piano is like straight out of that, that composition. But
0: wow. Yeah. No. Yeah. It really is great. And the way he kind of. Again, I never really looked at more until this time because we're looking at his work, but like the way he establishes and, and kind of like creates tension in the music and kind of helps with the pace of it all. Like it's done very well. Like in some cases, some would say it seems like almost like by the numbers with how it kind of mimics the action, but I think it amplifies everything so well, is the thing. Mm hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, and then and then the, a great scene, a scene is when Belle finds Maurice. He's at the he's at the castle, um, and she basically offers to switch places with Maurice, switch mm-hmm. places with her father. And the Beast is because the Beast at this point is seen as this evil individual, essentially this monster. And this is the first moment where you see the Beast show surprise i don't know if compassion's there yet but it's almost just like surprise this person is selfless is mm-hmm. the thing yeah it's a really good moment you haven't ever seen or aspect yeah
1: i mean you know that's that's going to lead us into be our guest which is yeah incredible I, I i mean i i think you know we we talked about how the i i said you know how they're kind of very obviously trying to throw you back to uh big live action movie musicals with mm-hmm. the little town but this this is obviously them just going like let's do follies or you know what like yeah. like this this is the the old school movie musical scene
0: yeah and it's no it very much is yeah. it's
1: so it's so well done I, I i have to admit something i was listening to the music yesterday in the car and i never in my yeah. entire life. I can't tell you how many times I've heard be our guest. I just realized for the first time yesterday that the beer steins have like German accents. Uh-huh. I'd never noticed that before.
0: <laughs> <laughs> just Such a great detail. Yeah. Well, it's right. I wrote down in terms of talking about the idea of not being a copy, but it being kind of a thesis for this. I wrote down, there's another song in a later Disney movie that i feel mimics the structure of this song like visually how it builds and builds mm-hmm. and builds and because that busby berkeley type musical and even that the hold at the end it's i just can't wait to be king oh me. yeah yeah it's you're like right. the same exact thing mm-hmm. <laughs> it just keeps building and building and more things are added more things are added more things are added and then boom we hold and it's over yeah and i was like this is the same structure and like the colors the the motions all of it's kind it's very very similar very similar
1: yeah um Um, i i I, as much as i enjoy the scene and i just nominated it for favorite scenes i do get very frustrated that Belle does not eat anything in this entire scene this
0: has been this has been a beef with you for years I
1: I i know she she takes she dips her finger in the gray stuff and that's it they made so much food they made so much food and then and then it's like wow great song i'm stuffed
0: yeah like who takes the tr- yeah like where where does the trash go in this world like i, I, don't, I don't know <laughs> who eats the food is just gonna waste where is it get- anyway anyway i have yeah. one qu- qu- question that I, I this is just very dumb question because the whole time everyone's kind of like get the beast to talk with bell mm-hmm. who do you think is the best wingman for beast in this movie Oh, it's Lumiere for sure. Is it Lumiere? Because I have kind of a dark horse. My dark horse. Let me get her actual name. Because I, it's, it's the wardrobe. Yeah, the wardrobe. Oh.
1: Okay, I think the wardrobe is a i thought, you were, I thought your man. dark horse was gonna be the footstool. I was like, you know what? No. That's yeah. You know, that's kind of like when they tell guys that you should get a dog yeah, get to a like, dog, yeah, yeah. like talk to women. Yeah, there you go. Also,
0: not a bad one. <laughs> not a bad one. Well, just like I think about the wardrobe because I was, she was like talking like he's really a nice guy is what she's saying. That's, him, oh, and that's saying true. The bell. Yeah, the, the master's like,
1: not so bad when she get to know him. Yeah, yeah,
0: And I'm just like, is the wardrobe just like all the time? Like, yo, Bell, come on. <laughs> he's a really nice guy. She
1: just, she just wants to dress Bell up. Come on, you know if. Yeah. They're not getting along. She's not going to have any use for those dresses.
0: You know, and and it's not, I don't know. I mean, it's like, they're spending a lot of time here in that room. Wardrobe's going to say some stuff about the beast. That's all I'm saying. She, (laughs) I think, is like hyping him up. And Lumiere's hyping the beast up. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think, I think the wardrobe's hyping Belle up to like, yo, you should look at, look at my man over here. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. He's got a lot of books. He does. Um, He does. He has a lot of books. It's just an idea. Just a thought. Just a thought um so then after this uh, a great sequence that is that is kind of a really exceptional uh, exceptional sequence in an animated film because it plays almost like a silent film and that's when bell leaves the castle on horse for the first time mm-hmm. gets attacked by the wolves the beast shows up saves her and then we go back to the castle
1: yeah and the score is it's great.
0: no di- it's no dialogue it's just pure action score and just beautiful and anim- beautiful animation like dark shadowy type world of the woods it's it's really fantastic really fantastic um one more thing i thought was interesting uh something there is a really interesting mm-hmm. song for an animated film. And there's probably more that I'm just blanking on. But why I find it so fascinating is that it's an inner monologue. Mm-hmm. Which you don't really see that often in movies where it's like. Because it's kind of an odd thing. Like, Okay. Well,
1: mo- I'm, I'll give you something else. Man, okay. these. Lion King. uh, Can you feel the love tonight? It's like a combination oh, right. of like, yeah. what they're feeling, but then also what the people. Are see what what kind of yeah. their friends are what, T- seeing
0: Timon, what tamale and pooh seeing? yeah yeah okay i'm on the same thing I'm john it's and tim rice th- it's the same it's the same thing you're right it's <laughs> the end of, at, at the end of this of something there it's the like them singing what's there mama Potts. yeah it's all <laughs> that wow man they really did just like go full on with this movie i did not expect that
1: Yeah, shout out something there. I really like that song. And, you know, you bring it back to that theme that was introduced in Little Town, which I think is great. Uh, Melodically, you know, the exact same line. And then also we get our only Robbie Benson uh, vocals. Okay, yes. Which, I mean, he's great.
0: I guess, well, I'll I'll save some of that layer in Film Facts because there's a reason for some of this. I will say this, though. With something there, it was the last song added it's oh. the movie. It was because initially they had the human again songs yes. mm-hmm. where um where the objects kind of sing about I can't wait really to be human again. I'll do this, 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 this. Um, and it was a big sequence, and they cut it because they felt like it messed with the timeline of the story. Mm-hmm. And they're like, We need something else here. And that's when they added in something there um to it all. Mm-hmm. To have that kind of like, oh, let's put so like Human Again was never actually animated, I don't think, initially. I think they animated it later for a re-release. Um, so this is the last song they put in the movie, is what it was. But yeah, it's a really sweet song. It really kinda, it's, a, it's a good like little like it's a good, again, a a good representation of like falling in love, essentially. Is that these characters are like, I don't know, something's kind of there, man. They're <laughs> just like both just like, I don't know. I don't know. It's like he was kind of a dick before <laughs> now he's kind of not i don't know um he, he show me books all this stuff um but yeah and that leads into the the dancing in the ballroom mm-hmm. which is just a breathtaking sequence yes um just honestly breathtaking
1: i i don't um, know what it is i i don't know color theory enough to you know but the 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 like gold of her dress and uh-huh. the like royal blue of his coat is just perfect.
0: Well, from, yeah, because like op- yeah. from- they're opposite on the color wheel, is what it yeah, is. Yeah, it
1: is. Oh yeah. man, it is it is so good.
0: Yeah, I think they're opposite on the color wheel. I also, know, but I'm pretty sure. I mean, I'm biased because those are my
1: high school colors. I just realized, but <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't gold; it was like yellow.
0: Yeah, I mean that's that's a that's a Dylan high school in um and
1: UCLA. Sorry.
0: No. Or oh, there's that, but Dillon <laughs> High School and in, and in, in a, in a Fire Night Lights TV show, mm. um, or East Dillon High School. Um, I will say this: it's not favorite scenes, but I I will. This is where I'm gonna I'm praise for a moment the the remake of the movie. I do think they needed a song with the Beast, yes, because ever, evermore is in this part right there, mm-hmm. and ever evermore I think is the one that's a really good addition yes i do like I, I like i
1: like evermore yeah it's yeah it's a good song
0: and say, and they also have um if i can't love you i believe is what it is is in the in the the broadway version mm. let me see i want to
1: yeah i also really like home from the broadway version it's yeah. a great song
0: it's if i can't love you yeah okay if i can't if i can't love her okay um but no that that's to praise that for a second. it was a good addition um the mob scene's great. It's really oh. one of the best representations of mob mentality I've seen in a <laughs> movie. That's It's a kid's film. It's a kid's film.
1: Yeah. Um, we skipped over Gaston, which I just got to throw it back. Oh, yeah, we did. Okay. This is, I want to take it back to Little Shop real quick. Uh-huh. You get like a humorous villain song,
0: yeah. Feed
1: Me. and Then you get like a scary villain song. You're right. You're right. Uh, with uh, Green Mean Mother.
0: Yeah, Mean Green, our, yeah, yeah Mars, so basically, yeah.
1: Um, but I, I, when I was a kid, Gaston was always my favorite. I love that song. Uh, it's, it's got, it's just, it's I think it's the best wordplay. Uh, you know, the, yeah, you know, it's more than I can bear. More beer, what for? Nothing helps. Um.
0: It's clever. It's a use, very clever, song. I use song.
1: antlers and all of my decorating, you know, it's it's all it's all great. And then and then the reprise of that is so much fun, it's, you know. Yes. No one uh, plots like Gaston takes cheap shots like Gaston. It's it's all it's all great. Gaston's And
0: Le, and, and Lefou's Lefou's fun. And, yeah. and, and like that's the thing. Lefou's fun in the, in the sequence.
1: Gaston's a great villain. You know, he's he's one of those those the I I there I read an article one time Stephen King wrote about the harry potter franchise when he was talking about like voldemort versus umbridge and he said you know that you either have a have mm. to have a villain who knows that they are 100 percent evil and has a like loves being evil or you have to have a villain who thinks that they are 100 percent in the right and gaston is like yeah i'm doing the right thing like i'm i'm the most popular guy here i'm gonna save this town and i'm gonna get the girl like yep i'm doing it everybody loves me everybody supports me in
0: this I mean, it really is kind of the the like just it flips what would be in a regular movie, mm-hmm. where like the big strong guy is the big kind of hulking hero who saves the girl, saves the girl, saves the town. But it's that in an evil way mm-hmm. and in a, d- a dumb way too. He's he's kind of a dumb character. But that's the thing is that everyone, anything in the past few years, um, <laughs> if like if you are loud enough and you can hit the emotions of a, of a group of people, you can prompt a lot of action very quickly. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens here. Because, you know, we all kind of like you. You're different than all of us. So, like, we aspire to be you. So we will listen to you. It's wild. This is a kid's movie, honestly, <laughs> when, when you think about it. Like, it's, 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 I, I, it's, a, it's a song that has weirdly... Gained more relevance and and importance or something as the decades have gone on, mm-hmm. because like some people kind of read and this is a kind of a scene here too that you could some people had read into and asked Minken about this at one point. Do they think Ashman was writing about like the AIDS epidemic at this point in time in the Bee and the Beast and mob mentality is kind of the big one? Was that kind of a, a allegory for? america's view of aids and how it was mostly considered a gay disease at that time mm-hmm. and how it's like we have to get them out of here type thing was that was that minkin says he doesn't believe ashman would do that like purposefully um he said he was never that overt but it could always slip in there in some way yeah, any other scenes you want to say? I mean, I th- I think visually I think the
1: transformation is is iconic, you know, the the lights yeah. shooting out and then the and then the way it's a little over dramatic, but the way he he uh turns back to her and then it's like yeah. the face from the the painting. Bill.
0: Yeah. It's
1: me. Um but I do I the the fight on the roof is Yeah. So well done with the rain and the gargoyles and the lightning. It's, yeah, it's, it's masterful animation.
0: Now, it's, it's always kind of hard to kind of put yourself in the context of the time of when something came out because now this feels very like typical with the animation of this all, the, and the rain and the, and the lightning and, but it really is. Not much has really been done before this movie, in this way that looked this good, is the thing. And it really is incredible. Um, I have I have I have one or two questions I will say. Mm-hmm. Um, but how old do you think Chip is? By a point like this, when like when he is, turns
1: back into a human, um, when he
0: turns back, it's like he like, is he like the kid in Near Dark, where he's just like actually like fifty years old or something. <laughs> um. That's a exactly good question. I don't know how long it's been. Well, I- Bell- it's uh,
1: It's it's by his 21st birthday that he has to.
0: That's what it is. Okay. By the,
1: by the beast 21st birthday that he has to be loved. Yeah. Isn't that what they say? I think so. But they don't say how young he is. Uh, surely he's not like younger than like 16. I mean, that's kind of screwed up. If you're a witch and there's like a 12 year
0: old. Yeah. And, gonna, this, this, and this prompts another question. I'm going to curse this Belle,
1: entire castle because this 12-year-old uh, was was spoiled rotten.
0: Yeah. And I think Belle, so there's reports. I'm trying to go the age. I didn't look into this. But there's reports that Belle is as young as 17 or as old as early 20s. Well, Lumiere says 10 years we've been rusting, right? Oh, you're right. So he was 11? What? <laughs> I mean, come on! You're gonna be a dick, right? When you're like your piece was eleven, <laughs> you're not so, you're
1: not supposed to let strangers in the why, door at eleven. Why 11? is he even
0: yeah. answering the door? Like, why is he? <laughs> if he's if he's full of all these like butlers and stuff, why is he the one person answering the door yeah. here? Well, he does like he, I think that well, I guess it probably assumes that someone else answers it and he sends her away. Is probably yeah. what it is. Yeah he is 11 though come on um,
1: like... i'm a little questionable of that of that <laughs> enchantress <laughs> of that witch yeah
0: i really don't like that enchantress i think she's kind of in the wrong here
1: yeah.
0: um but yeah i was just like how old is like 11 so year old that's... doesn't
1: want to doesn't want a rose what's an 11 year old gonna do with a rose
0: so then that just that makes me like almost think of like this is a big scenario where like the guy's grown up and his like best friend is Chip, and he's like a young kid. And like Chip like was a girl.
1: baby, you know, and <laughs> yeah. it turned it just turned like all the babies into uh mugs. My question has always been like all the other all those other like little yeah, coffee mugs are favorite? children. Why is Chip the favorite? Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> why is Chip the favorite? That's a all lot of kids? children, <laughs> anyway. Enough about that. Um, those are just my questions. Um, all right, so moving on to onset life here with this movie. So as I said, we ended it with them starting to write music for this movie. The first song that Minkin and Ashman wrote was "Bell," was the thing. Um, that's when he talked about kind of establishing exposition through song and not through dialogue. Uh, one of the biggest kind of issues, however, was there was a big push and pull about who the lead character of the story was. They said Ashman said... He, was kind of, he kind of had the big breakthrough that the lead character is someone who has the biggest change internally and possibly even externally throughout the course of the film, which in turn makes it the Beast. Um, they also said kind of the, the big kind of stuff they changed throughout the script. They add new characters in, in the form of Enchanted Household items to add warmth and comedy to a gloomy story. I think that was somewhat present in the 1940s version of You and the Beast, the French version by Jean Cocteau. Um, and they also added a real villain in the form of Gaston, which I think is also kind of a mix of what was in Jean Cocteau or, or the 1940s Beauty and the Beast, the mm-hmm. French version. One big thing that Ashman suggested was they, he suggested casting the movie in New York instead of Los Angeles. Now, this is something they kind of did in Little Mermaid as well, where Ashman and Minkin wanted to cast, or Ashman, I think more so, wanted to cast the movie like it was a Broadway show and not a movie. Mm-hmm. So they would get New York Broadway trained actors. To be in it. And Robbie Benson, who plays The Beast, says it felt like a Broadway show. Paige O'Hara, who played Belle, said they auditioned over 500 actresses for Belle, and probably about the same for every character in the movie. Here are the three names that were considered for The Beast before Robbie Benson was cast in the role Lawrence Fishburne, Val Kilmer, and Mandy Patinkin. Oh, wow. If you cast me, you you would have had a song. You would have had a big song, yes. I think. Yeah, um, for sure. But there's a reason for the lack of Beast song. Apparently, they wanted to have a Beast song, but because Ashman was getting so sick, he was unable to write a song mm. for the Beast, is what it was, like a solo song. John Cleese was originally offered the role of Cogsworth, but Lair turned it down to be an American tale. Fievel goes West. Uh, Julie I'm Andrews. A big Fievel
1: goes West guy. So, you know, I'm on board I haven't seen that.
0: it since I was a kid. I haven't seen that in a while. I haven't seen that in a while. Uh, Julie Andrews was originally considered for the role, the voice of Mrs. Potts, but eventually went to Angela Lansbury. Angela Lansbury, getting a lot of roles, particularly on with Julie Andrews, like, uh, Mary Poppins Returns was supposed to be like the... Did you ever see Mary Poppins Returns? I did,
1: I did not. I didn't see that one. Well, there's
0: kind of... A, there's a spoiler alert, there's a cameo. And you can tell there's a, there's a role that was supposed to be Mary Poppins... Andrews, like playing a Mary Poppins-like character, but ends up being Angela Lansbury in the movie. Hmm. So when kind of recording for the music of the movie, Angela Lansbury really fought hard to not sing Beauty and the Beast... Hmm. she felt another character should sing it and essentially they said no you sh- we should have you sing it like don't worry about it and and she's like, okay i'll do like one take of it and it was i think it was Minkin and ashman that really kind of said do one take of it and then if you don't like it you're not good we'll move on and she did it one time made everyone cry and that's the take that's in the movie so there you go wow uh initially the be our guest sequence was not going to be bell it was going to be maurice oh okay they're doing it for and they changed that yeah it was
1: i can i mean i can see the way that they kind of welcome him in at, when he first uh-huh. comes in and like they put him by the fire and everything yeah
0: yeah so i also said earlier that the movie was supposed to be supposed to take four years to animate but they only had two so they really had to move fast to make this movie so, most production was done in Glendale at their warehouse facility, airway facility. Um, they also had a smaller team working on the BR Guest number at Disney MGM Studios in Orlando, Florida. When that was a working studio. Mm-hmm. Beauty and the Beast was the second film, after the Rescuers Down Under, to use a program called CAPS, Computer, computer Animated... Computer animation production system, a digital scanning ink, paint, and compositing system, based like a really kind of better version of like the multiplane camera that Walt Disney had they created in the 1940s with Pinocchio. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was essentially developed by Pixar. And it offered just a wider range of colors and texture and detail. And this is basically used for the ballroom sequences where it's really kind of put into play. And it's, as I said before, it's incredible. They actually use like essentially filmmaking techniques to make this sequence like the dolly In, the the kind of crane. Like it's really it's a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous scene. Now, there is one part in this movie that I noticed when watching it and I was like, that's from something else. There's one scene in this movie that is a scene from a previous film. And they reused it here. Can you guess what scene and what movie it's from?
1: Like a like a like an animation
0: cell, an anime. An, well, an, no, I just sell like an animation, like kind of movement. I will say, because hmm. Disney was known for this. And this was yeah, kind of yeah, I know me. that. I in know the they seven, reused, in the seventies. Yeah, they, I know reused, they reused like Aristocats of, yeah. and stuff.
1: Um, but no, I don't know what.
0: It's the final dance sequence. At when they're all human again, it's from Sleeping Beauty when Princess Aurora and Princess Phillip are dancing. Oh, at the end. okay. When they're waltzing. and her dress is changing colors. Mm-hmm. It's the same sequence. And Trosdale one of the directors, said it was done because they were nearing production and it was the easiest way to get that sequence done it was just a copy from Sleeping Beauty. Yeah,
1: yeah. I was just thinking when you were talking about it, like breaking it down from four years to two years. I was like, can you imagine if they had Twitter when this was going on? it was like, Sorry. oh these animators are overworked and underpaid <laughs> surprise Speaking people it's night. been happening all <laughs> all since, throughout since the history. creation of film
0: basically basically um so the the sad part of all this I guess leading leading into aftermath um before the movie was officially finished howard ashman would pass away due to the complications he had with aids mm-hmm. uh, ashman died at the age of 40 years old is what it was and it was eight months before the film was released in theaters. He did see a work print of the movie and was aware that this was on the... This, this would be a, a big thing. Mm-hmm. And so Disney made a very interesting and kind of ballsy decision. Something that I think they just did right recently with Can that didn't work out for them. Yes. When they played Indiana Jones 5. They made the decision to show Beauty and the Beast, a unfinished version of Beauty and the Beast, a work in progress version that was only 70 percent done with storyboards and pencil tests being used in replacement of the other 30 percent. So kind of the whole ending is just like sketches. And they were like, we're going to show this in the New York Film Festival a few months before it's supposed to come out. And people are like, they're insane. <laughs> this is not going to work. And the film ended up being heralded as a triumph in its form, receiving a 10-minute-long standing ovation at the New York Film Festival, a place that's kind of considered pretentious and snobbish, mm-hmm. and it's this massive thing. It would later be, it would later be shown also out competition after its release in America and at Cannes Film Festival in 1992. It was a critical and box office sensation. Ebert gave it for Roger Ebert, gave it four out of four stars saying beauty and the beast reaches back to an older and healthier Hollywood tradition in which the best writers, musicians, and filmmakers are gathered for a project on the assumption that a family audience deserves great entertainment too. He later give the IMAX release also four stars. He, he was very, I think he actually saw it at New York film festival and he was like, blown away by it essentially. And I think Siskel was as well. Um, he also gave it four stars saying it's one of the most entertaining films for both adults and kids. And they both Siskel and Ebert both predicted it was a legitimate contender for best picture of the year. And that's when it made more history after grossing over, I guess, $400 million, at the box office It would then gain multiple Oscar nominations they've gained a total of six Oscar nominations for one for best sound, three for best song, one for best original score, and then one for best picture, making it the first film to first animated film to do so Mm -hmm. at the Academy Awards. Uh, And especially within the, the the top and the five model. Now it's in the 10 model. So you kind of see a few movies sneak in there all the time. It was very new at that point. And also received four golden globe nominations and actually one for best motion picture, musical comedy. Uh, it would lose the oscars to silence of the lambs so it happens uh it, that year it was it was silence of the lambs being the beast bugsy jfk and the prince of tides uh and the best director category Felman louise and boys in the hood so not wow. a bad year not a bad year yeah the, the Fisher King also that year, City Slickers also that year, <laughs> oh man, um, Cape Fear wow. also that year, Barton Fink also that year, <laughs> um, oh man, big 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 year uh, for 1991. So it would it would it would be the first to do so. Uh, it is now seen as one of the again greatest animated films of all time. Uh, it would become a part of the Disney brand or be kind of part of the big Disney, the, the Disney imagery of, and storyline of the Disney Renaissance. Um, but I will say this is that Ashman was a big part of creating this Disney Renaissance. And some people would say he was, if you had to pick one person who was like responsible for this Disney Renaissance, many people would say Howard Ashman, even though he only worked on two kind of three films, the latter, which we'll talk about next week. Um, but Minkin like really had to like he was his collaborator he came into this with him so he's at a very interesting point after Ashman dies after this um, after after the after this movie was released he wins two Oscars at uh, that year at the Academy Awards one for best original score and one for best song for being the beast with Howard Ashman but uh, Minkin said when talking about this time He said, for me, part of it was I was in the upward trajectory, and I was young and ambitious and wanted to have a career. At the same time, I wanted to protect the integrity of Howard's and my work, so I just stepped into the role that Howard had filled. I became, with all my collaborations, a much more dominant collaborator. It's something I had seeded when I was working with Howard, but you just have to go on. So basically, moving forward in the rest of the movies we talk about, he kind of takes the mantle of the partnership that he had with Howard takes what Howard was doing as the more dominant force and the creative aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And he becomes more of that in the collaboration he does with Tim Rice, which we'll talk about next week with Aladdin, Stephen Schwartz with Hunchback of Notre Dame. And I think Glenn Slater with Tangled. Um, so yeah. So what worked about being the beast Thomas?
1: Uh, I mean, I think we've, we've covered a lot of it, but, uh, I think the the animation, the music, the score, the cast and then I think overall that kind of, you know, what we're talking about here with the Disney renaissance is uh, you know, a, a throwing back to like the fairy tales that mm-hmm. that Disney had kind of made its name on but with a more modern style of storytelling and and with more modern sensibilities.
0: Yeah, cuz I mean I one thing we didn't talk about really and I, and I I can't delve too much into it because I'm not an expert in this, but like in terms of like the previous like quote unquote princesses and Disney movies, they make bell a much more active character, essentially mm-hmm. much more intelligent. Like essentially she's weird in town because she's intelligent. Essentially she's different. She's unique. Uh, she's independent and wants to like, doesn't need no man is kind of the whole thing for the most of the movie. Um, and that's what kind of is somewhat of my issue. Um, I don't say that with Beauty and the Beast, the remake is that like I think it was something like I think the characters inherently there and being different than what the other characters were, and so adding way more feels mm-hmm. kind of off. Maybe I'm wrong with that, I don't know. Um, no, I mean but, I,
1: I think I think without getting too deep into the the remake yeah. there's there's a lot of of telling not showing in the in the updated yes. script and and one of those yes. there's like a scene in the beginning when she's like they're scared of me cuz I'm teaching girls how to read and it's like okay well you know that's <laughs> you, you you just added a whole line of dialogue that accomplishes the same thing we knew from the song in the original like yeah they were obviously like the whole song is about how She's weird because she's smart.
0: <laughs> yeah. I just feel like it feels like some extra additions that might not have been needed. But that's the whole other thing too. Like it's a two hour long movie when this movie's like a, a solid like eighty like eight, 90 minutes basically or eighty something minutes, depending on what cut you're watching. Um but no, yeah, I think the voice cast is amazing. Jerry Orbach, who's is is, is amazing. Paige O'Hara's great. Um and they were looking at casting Jodie Benson, I know, at one point, who played Ariel in Little Mermaid, but they wanted a more, I think, mature voice is what it was. They felt that mm. Joey Benson was playing as Ariel was too much of a young girl voice is what it was, and Paige O'Hara had more of a a, a mature voice, a older voice, which makes me think she's early twenties. Uh, as or Bella's again, animation's gorgeous. Again, there there's a real great heart to the story is the thing. Mm. Um, that becomes the, the template, as we said, with Lion King and all these others, becomes the template for this kind of period. It feels like, or the the one that you'll always go to is the is the pinnacle of this era, is Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. Now, did anything not work? I have one specific thing I will say.
1: Oh, okay, okay. Um, I mean, I think she she should have eaten during the. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you know, there's going to be some some Stockholm syndrome questions yes, when that you have a that too, a, that too, yes. a movie of of this plot. But she
0: he he holds her captive, and she's the whole feminist part of it. He holds her hat captive, and she falls in love with him. Yeah, it's, it's questionable. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. And I, yeah. now I've got some questions about the the ethics the of this enchantress. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, what 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 do you have? What's your
0: note? This is one very and this is very nitpicky in terms of a filmmaking thing. they show the beast too early mm. because they show him fully in the prologue. I guess it makes sense because Ashman says he's the main character but mm. I wondered if you could have found a way to never show his face clearly you just see like his claw or certain things to you build that moment when you finally see him with Maurice,
1: mm-hmm.
0: because we already know what he looks like before this moment. So we're, we're, we already know we're, we already have an idea of what to expect, but if you don't show him and just show the claw, there's just a little more suspense to it. Mm-hmm. Just that's a very nitpick thing. There's a few animation things when you get wide that you can tell it's not as detailed and then you get closer and it becomes more detailed Um, but nothing, nothing major besides that, besides those things. Yeah. So film facts, I don't have a lot. Um, I will say, I said earlier that Ashman couldn't write a song for the beast because he was sick. So that's why in the Broadway show, Minkin and Tim Rice added, if I can't love her, as being the big song for the beast. Cause that was the one thing they always wished they had done with the movie was give the beast a song. And that ends up being the same thing with the, the 2017 version with evermore. They're going to put, if I can't love her, but they felt like it had to be one or the other was the thing. Mm-hmm. And they went with evermore instead, because it was a more important moment in, uh, in the film awards. The Beatrice Strait Award actor acts limited scenes that kills it.
1: Uh, okay. Limited scenes. Who, who are we counting as limited scenes here?
0: So I have one that is... We haven't even talked about yet. But mainly because it's, it's, it might be re- a reference to me later... But Tom J as the guy who plays the warden of the asylum mm,
1: mm-hmm. is
0: really great. To, to, I'm sorry, Tony J, not Tom J. Tony J. He'll later play um, Frollo in *Hunchback of Notre Dame*, but he's really good in the one. And I always think about his character and his voice because he's the kind of decrepit old man with the mm-hmm. with the chin and the bald and the hair coming out. And he's really good. And he's only in like two scenes, but. I could listen to other arguments.
1: No, I think I, that's, that is who came to mind when I was trying to think of somebody really? who, who okay. only has a couple of couple of lines. Cause yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of supporting characters. Yes, uh, a lot,
0: like, like, like Maurice is too supporting is the thing. The wardrobe while good, I don't think has enough that makes it memorable mm-hmm. for, as memorable for me. I don't know why. Okay. The Antipod Takes Factor Award supporting actor, or actress is the most memorable. It's uh, a tough one.
1: It is a tough one. I I, I have to go with my gut. I could talk myself out of it if I wanted to, but if I'm going with my gut, I'm going Jerry Orbach.
0: Yeah, I'm going Jerry Orbach too. Angela Lansbury is a very close second because of the B and the B song, but Orbach, I think because what I know of Jerry Orbach and what I've seen him in before and after it's so different yeah yeah it's i would so never different.
1: i would never if if you it's
0: the dad from dirty dancing <laughs> yeah
1: if you were like hey cast this cast this like lothario french singer candlestick i would never in a million years go oh yeah of course jerry Arbach. yeah for <laughs> sure did you see did you see crimes and misdemeanors yeah yeah exactly that guy <laughs>
0: Yeah, he's, is he Martin Landau's, like, brother? Uh, his brother, brother is in that, is? yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I know he did music. He did, like, 42nd Street on Broadway, and he was, like, one of the lead characters in that, and that was... And was he the original... I don't know if he was the original one, or but he played... um Oh, gosh, Chicago. Oh, Richard the, Gere's role. The lawyer. Uh, uh, Billy Flynn. Yeah. I believe he played Billy Flynn... Yeah, he was the original Billy Flynn in Chicago, and the original Julian Marsh in Forty Second Street. So he he had played roles like that before, but he was out of those roles was the mm-hmm. thing. So I feel like he's got going back to those earlier roles, and what's really nice to see. But he's it's, yeah, great song, a show stopping song. But he's great throughout with the comedic moments. His his chemistry with David Ogden Stiers as as Cogsworth, like I think it's great. Mm-hmm. So Jerry Orbach. Annie Potts. All right. The Gene Hackman MVP award. The person who carries the movie director, actor, etc.
1: Uh, I mean, we might be showing our hand here for the rest of the month, but I think it's Ashman and Minken.
0: I think it's Ashman and Mencken. If you, if you had to pick one, I would say Ashman. Ashman, yeah. Because I think it's just he's such a tour de force and like what he's doing at this time, being sick with A or being ill with AIDS and he's still putting out possibly I mean he basically sadly goes out with possibly his best work mm-hmm. like musically story wise it's it's kind of the I I mentioned kind of rent earlier it's very much in the line with like rent it feels like mm-hmm. where his legacy lives on because of this movie and I think eventually here in a way where everyone beforehand was like, what would Walt do in this moment after Walt passed away? I think there's a little bit of like, what would Howard Ashman do in this moment? Mm-hmm. Cause everyone always said that knew him and worked with him. They said he was the closest they ever saw to Walt Disney. And that's a big undertaking for his partner, Alan Menken to come up when, to come up with afterwards and continue working in that, in that kind of playground, basically in that, in that sandbox. Mm-hmm. Is he has to kind of take up the mantle and kind of continue his collaborators' work. And so, in turn, you need, and with the scoring aspect of this too, is like, you need both of them. It's kind of the great combination of music and lyrics. And while there are other great movies after this, and we'll discuss several of them, I think it was at their peak when it was these two together in this movie. Mm-hmm. Is the thing.
1: Yeah. For sure.
0: All right. Final questions. I asked you if we, if we cast this movie in the original kind of time period that Disney was thinking about, it's like thirties or forties, I will say forties or whatever. Who would you cast in this movie?
1: Okay. Hear me out. Okay. What if for Belle, you had Joan Fontaine and then for the beast, you had Lawrence Olivier.
0: Okay. Can Joan Fontaine sing?
1: no i don't know i don't
0: know <laughs> just there are there
1: are moments in this movie where i'm like is this rebecca uh you know the, like don't go in the west
0: wing don't go in the west wing yeah
1: um no i don't know it's it's tough to know who can sing in the in, the, in this true. period um gene well, tierney and
0: I, I think in the, in the four in the 40s they just read the deborah yeah based that's true
1: i think gene tierney could sing yes i think uh-huh. i think gene tierney could be could be uh bell okay that's that's who i'm thinking And then for Beast...
0: Well, one suggestion. Yeah. What about Judy Garland here?
1: How old is Judy Garland at the... uh... At this point in time? Yeah. I was thinking early 40s, but...
0: is early 40s. She is going to be 19 or 20. Okay.
1: Yeah, we can go Judy Garland.
0: Judy Garland? Okay. Why not? Yeah.
1: Uh, Beast, I have no idea who could sing (laughs) at this point um
0: well he doesn't sing a song so that's you're fine. true
1: that's
0: true <laughs> he has a little bit of something there we can do, that. In Anyone can do
1: that my Paul. um <laughs> uh william holden
0: okay when did he do is a golden boy he he'd be he'd be at a good age when you do golden golden boy start yeah, yeah yeah golden boy's 39 and that was when he was 22 or 21. I think he so can be, yeah. He can kind of yeah. bridge
1: that line between like scary and charming. You know, I agree. I feel like some of those guys in that era were like a little too scary. And some of those guys in that era yeah. were like a little too charming. But um...
0: yeah, no, I, I think those are those are both perfect. Um, I'm trying to think who could be the, some of the other ones.
1: Oh yeah, who's, um, who's our? I mean, I, I feel like obviously like Marie Chevalier is is Lum- Lumiere.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: um, um, I don't know who uh, who a uh, Gaston is at that point.
0: He he might be too old. I mean, I know he is, but a young version of him, Clark Gable would have killed this role. Like, I've seen Clark Gable be a villain in like early movies mm-hmm. before he got big and be, it was a star. He was a good villain. He would have been good here. Yeah, um, I buy it. There's a movie called Night Nurse where he, with him and Barbara Stanwork. he's really he's like a. You find out he's like this guy who's like poisoning the his stepchildren to like get the money or something. Some of a spoiler alert, I guess, <laughs> but he's po- He's poisoning his stepchildren, basically. Um, really sick, like de- like demented guy in that. I think he'd be a good Gaston. Um, like david Ogden or cogsworth is that like wc fields like frank morgan <laughs> frank morgan from wizard of oz to go with the wizard of oz oh, connection yeah, yeah. Frank, frank morgan would be good who would be the angela who would be mrs potts billy burke would probably be the one for for mrs potts we're just gonna all wizard of oz cast is what it is <laughs> billy Burke who's glenn, glenn the good witch um all right uh next question does this film fit when wait, wait, this is a little different um Our genre is Alan Minkin. I guess what genres does this movie fit within is maybe the better question.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a fairy tale. It's a children's children's animated fairy tale. I feel like Mm -hmm. is a is a genre of its own. But then I I think the interesting thing, especially in that in this Disney Renaissance, is when you start to get these other kind of subgenres mixed in. And I think this one especially, I I just said Rebecca, but like this is this is a gothic romance. This is Disney's (laughs) Disney's gothic gothic romance. Uh, probably it's as, as much as they've ever done one um yeah and you've got that you've got like a little bit of horror in there you've got this kind of foreboding mansion and and i mean there is a there's a lot of rebecca in this movie yeah. um and rebecca kind of being the quintessential gothic romance um i mean beyond that uh i think kind of those are those are the big big two, it is it is you know a romance out now out. yeah
0: is this because you mentioned this at one point is it like getting out of your small town movie as well is that is that something yeah You're,
1: that's a good question how far is this castle from that town I,
0: I, another question i had was like do they already know about the castle like is this like an edward scissorhands bit where they know it's there but they don't go there is the thing yeah because when they when the, when they're like he's at the castle let's go they already know where it's at it's not a long walk there like yeah
1: yeah no, I think Is they just thought true? it was like oh there's yeah it's that castle that's like ruled over by that like 16 year old that nobody's heard from in years
0: <laughs> yes they they all must know that guy they <laughs> almost know know him it's like oh the that person
1: there's a beast um, out there not a beast no that's a 12 year old last <laughs> I heard
0: <laughs> oh that's great um and then how does this film fit within the works of Alan Minken?
1: I mean it's 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 hard it, it's I don't want to say we're starting with the with the top the best but, one yeah <laughs> but I do think you know we we haven't you know formally covered it but but we've as as we said we've done an episode on little shop we all obviously know little mermaid um but yeah I think as as far as kind of the formality of his work and I think as as obviously won an Oscar for little mermaid it, it is a, it is a good score but but this is where his work kind of starts to feel epic i think here and and where i think he is equally matching himself as far as a songwriter a a collaborator on on musical songwriting as well as Mm. just straight up film score which is a completely different beast um yeah and so yeah this movie is this movie is music throughout and and it never I, i don't think there's a weak link here so you know unfortunately as we've been saying with kind of him losing a collaborator in Ashman I I think the the question as as this the rest of the series goes on is like does he top this and we're, we're we'll have to see
0: I think it's going I think it's going to get larger in scale mm-hmm. with certain things Well and I think this this might be the
1: perfect example of like you know cuz cuz we're not talking about an all tour here we're talking about someone who is handling you know w- A very important portion of these movies but one portion of these movies the the music the songwriting and and you know obviously he has to collaborate with the screenwriters and and all of this in order to tell Mm -hmm. the story but i think we will come to find examples of something where his work is still really shining even though other people may have dropped the ball at certain points on on their part uh, yeah. But I think this is the one within his career where it's like every single person was was just on it.
0: Yeah. And it feels like because all the pressure, too, it's, it's kind of crazy to think how well they did with the cut down the two years, like almost thrown together, Ashman's sickness, directors changing conflict with the animator and writer. And yet they all kind of gather together in the in the in the the last hours to make something magical, mm-hmm. so yeah. So that's it for *Beauty and the Beast*. But we have several episodes coming up about Alan Menken. So we're gonna do *Hunchback of Notre Dame* later in the month. We're gonna do *Tangled* later in the month. But next week, we're talking about a movie where Menken's coming out, coming out, coming out to do after his collaborators passed away, his collaborators' passion project, and also the project with Disney Animation that legitimizes it i think as a hollywood player with casting of a big movie star with robin williams and that that is aladdin so stay tuned for aladdin next week be sure to join our patreon if you haven't already we just finished our con Aris series over there we did matchstick men and, and um uh a fish called wanda on the conars series go to, mm-hmm. go to that we're gonna be doing newsies on patreon this <laughs> month and one more i believe um so stay tuned for that there's the one dollar five dollar ten dollar Please join if you can. Uh, your money goes to help us can, can continue to create this show, and you'll get exclusive content, either in newsletter form or podcast form. So do that if you can. We truly appreciate it. But that's all we have for this episode. If you have any questions for us, feel free to contact us at the podcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions, comments, kind words. Just t- tell us things you love about the show. I don't know. Also, if you're a new listener or a fan of the show and for some reason you haven't subscribed to us yet, be sure to do so, so you can stay updated on all of our new episodes. You can subscribe to our show on Al Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. I think they're about to do away with Stitcher, by the way, so I gotta yes, check that out. Yeah, um, I just got an email yeah. the
1: other day. R.I.P. Yeah, weird.
0: So, Al Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, be sure to write us for your review and preferred podcast platform.
1: Guys, there's there's just one podcast in town that's got it all down, and its name is C, C, I, N. C I N E.
0: <laughs> I was like, "Where are you going with this?" And then I realized I've been having to spell it out with people lately too. I've, I've, I've there noticed. you go. Yeah, that's why. Yeah.
1: Uh, but yeah, um, we'd lo- love to hear from you. So give us a review. Let us know what you think.
0: Yep. And also, again, be sure to, if you're in the LA area, in Los Angeles area, be sure to get your tickets to Thing of Paradise on August 11th, uh, Friday, August 11th at seven th- or ten thirty p.m. Uh, check it out. We hope to see you there. But also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, TikTok, all those social media platforms. Tom, as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. We hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye.